0: you are listening to the ecology hour on kzyx my name is hannah bird and i will be your host this evening And welcome to tonight's Ecology Hour. I'm really excited about introducing you to our guests this evening. We will be starting the show off with Prakrit Jain, who is a student at UC Berkeley and who I first met when he was just 11 years old here at the Hopland Research and Extension Center. He showed a great deal of interest in scorpions back then and went on to discover two new species of California scorpion when he was just 17 years old. And so I think you'll enjoy meeting with Prakrit this evening and hearing about how he made those discoveries and why they are of value to us for conservation in the future. We then are going to move on to an interview with Dr. Mike Jones and Kyle Farmer from University of California Cooperative Extension, who are going to be discussing the um, effects on our woodlands of the recent heavy snow. I know here at the Hopland Research and Extension Center, we saw many, many trees come down after the snow. And we're going to discuss with Mike and Kyle what led to those trees falling, and what that might mean for the future of our woodlands too. So let's get started with our conversation with Prakrit Jain. Okay, Um, so I am so excited for this month's episode of the Ecology Hour to be joined by Prakrit Jain who I had the joy of meeting for the first time, I looked into this and it was all the way back in 2016. And at that time, how old would you have been in 2016?
1: Uh, So I would have been around 11,
0: probably. (laughs) And as an 11 year old, um, I remember making the assumption that you might not know too much about various um, wildlife species on the site, but you wanted to learn. And quite quickly, I realized I was wrong in that assumption, because you were telling me more about scorpions than I had ever heard from anybody else. And um, I still it still um, makes me happy to think of that encounter. Um, And Prakrit, now you are at um, UC Berkeley. And am I right in thinking you're studying integrative biology?
1: Yeah, that's correct.
0: Yeah. And you're in your first year there, correct? Yes. So Prakrit, I've given a kind of a little bit of a sense to our listeners of the fact that you have a passion um, for for scorpions and I suspect for various other species too, maybe we can get into that, but certainly scorpions is what I first met you and what we talked about the most then. Um, You were easily identifying the scorpion that we have on site, the Western Forest scorpion here. Um, And you have gone on to now have added Two more scorpion species to California's list of scorpions, which is just amazing. And I, I should mention that's alongside your, your friend, Harper Forbes. And I know you had a little bit of support in the background from Lauren Esposito from the Cal Academy of Sciences, but you guys definitely did the, the chunk of the work here. So, can we start from the very beginning, Precrate? Um, and can I just ask you, what was it that got you into wildlife and then scorpions um, specifically?
1: Uh, So, as far as wildlife goes, uh, I've been really interested in that since I was like basically a toddler. Uh, Mm -hmm. My parents used to take me out uh, for birding or uh, to go to nature centers or other areas to view wildlife and learn about it more. Uh, So, I was really interested in that since I was a little kid. Um, But scorpions have been a little bit more of a recent interest. Um, Actually, Hopland, the first time I went there in 2016 was. Uh, the time I got to meet uh, Dr. Lauren Espusto, and also one of the first times I got to see a, like a large number of scorpions pretty easily. So um, that was definitely one of the, the moments that like made me realize how much scorpion uh, like abundance and diversity we have in California, and that sort of kick-started my interest. Uh, later on, as I started working on independent research of my own Scorpions were one of the groups I found to be a good option and I decided on pursuing them a little bit further and I, uh, the more I learned about them the more I found that there's many mysteries to be solved and lots of interesting paths uh, to take my research on. So yeah I think actually Hopland was was a big part of the reason that I'm doing Scorpions right now.
0: Well obviously I am just loving hearing that but something tells me that whatever happened Prakrit, you were going to find things that excited you when you were going to progress with that. So um, I feel very thrilled to have been any part of that whatsoever. Um, I'm also excited for So one of the reasons that we met then it was a bio blitz and a bio blitz is an opportunity for people to come together on um, one property and uh, try to find as many different species as possible in a short period of time. Um, And then normally um, to collect that data onto an app called iNaturalist and I know you are an expert user of iNaturalist now. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you use iNaturalist and particularly about what drew you to this particular scorpion observation and made you think there's something more to this?
1: Yeah, so iNaturalist uh, is, I think, one of the most significant uh, advances in uh, the field of like biodiversity science uh, in quite a while because it allows people from all around the world to post pictures of various organisms they've seen, uh, even if they don't know what they are, and allows experts in whichever field that organism might be in to come and take a look and uh, provide an identification. And more and more I'm seeing that publications like in all fields of biodiversity science are using iNaturalist as a resource to find interesting records, because for a lot of rare or unusual animals, it's simply impractical for uh, like a scientist to go and sample every possible spot where it might be found. But it's quite frequent that somebody accidentally manages to turn some of these things up. And that's exactly what happened in both these cases. Uh, both Soda Lake and Cohen Lake are places where it's not the most obvious place to go and search, un- unless you uh, have this model of alkali or urochinous scorpions, because the habitats look kind of like desolate and a bit dead. Uh, They're very, very salty and very alkaline and just don't really look like a good place for much stuff to be living uh, on the surface. But just by chance, some people, uh, some users of iNaturalist had gone there and while doing whatever else they, they might have been doing, they managed to turn up a couple of scorpions and they posted pictures. Uh, and as I was looking through the pictures uh, of scorpions on iNaturalist, as I often do, um, I noticed that these were uh, almost certainly undescribed species of scorpions. They didn't look like anything I'd ever seen before. So uh, I knew immediately that I had to go and check it out and see what was going on. Actually, mm-hmm. these are far from the only scorpion observations I've seen on iNaturalist that undescribed species. I've seen a dozen or more others uh, from just California and Nevada, which I'm almost certain are undescribed, uh, some of which I've followed up on, some of which are still on the list to go and check in later seasons.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: uh, yeah, these ones yeah. specifically. Yeah. Sorry?
0: Oh, well, I'm just I'm just amazed. I'm I'm amazed at your observation skills because obviously, so I I take my I take myself as an example of a, a fairly very basic eye naturalist user who often takes pictures of things, not very good quality pictures, and not necessarily of all the crucial details that you might need to see a difference between species. Um so were the pictures that you were looking at, were they good pictures? Or 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 was it in enough difference from the very get-go that you could tell this is not uh, similar to another California scorpion?
2: Um,
1: I mean, the pictures were sort of just standard cell phone shots, but um, these scorpions were found in fairly unique habitats, Mm -hmm. and just by looking at the shape of the scorpion, it was quite clear that they belonged to a subset of this genus Frieroctinus, which is not known from anywhere near the places where these individual scorpions were found. So even without knowing all that much about their specific details, it was pretty obvious that these were gonna be something different.
0: And uh, on top of
1: that, sorry?
0: No, go on, Prachrit. I don't mean to interrupt.
1: Keep going. <laughs> uh, on top of that, Paryochinus soda, the one from Curriza Plain, is one of the most unique looking Paryochinus species in the state. Um, it probably dies for the largest species, along with Paryochinus xanthus, from the Algodonus dunes in the south, and also has probably the widest hands. So it, it is relatively unique.
0: Wow. So, um, let me take us back just a tiny step so you the first um observation that you saw and thought, I think this is a new this is this is not something we have described um was at a place in the Mojave desert, is that right?
1: Yeah, that was Goin Lake in the Fremont Valley in northern Mojave near the um near the town of Mojave or California City
0: okay. And obviously that's a little bit of a distance away. So um, I'm I'm guessing that these pictures on iNaturalist are not enough by themselves for you to declare this is definitely a new species. Am I right in thinking you had to go out there and check this out?
1: Yeah. So in order to describe a scorpion species formally, you need to collect a series, take measurements, uh, describe them in detail and provide like a detailed list of why they differ from everything else they might possibly be similar to. So for that, you need specimens.
0: So help me. So I I, I want to hear about your journey out there and, and what it must have been like actually meeting this species right for the first time. But um just to put it in context, how many different scorpion species do we have in California?
1: Uh, we have somewhere around the 60 to 65 range. There's a few species which we think might live in California, but we're not sure they've only been confirmed for Arizona. Um, and there's a few species which are supposedly found in California, but I don't think that the the records in California are actually legitimate, Mm
0: -hmm. but somewhere
1: in the 60 to 65 range.
0: Okay, all right. So that's a a fairly decent amount of different scorpions that you must have in your brain to be able to uh, make this um, identification and recognize its value. Yeah, although notably, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, you go on.
1: So uh, the 65 species is the number of described species in the state, um, but the number of undescribed species could, increase that by 20 or 30 or 50 depending on uh which groups turn out to be like uh as diverse as they are
0: it sounds to me as if that is a challenge that you are excited about taking on am i right yeah. in thinking that? <laughs>
1: yeah well, yeah i'm excited I- about trying to resolve our, our scorpion diversity i think there's some really really cool stuff that's still left unnamed
0: and as we close to the end of this interview, I really want us to think about why that is important. But before we get there, I want to carry on with this story. So um, I, I'm also lucky to have enjoyed um, meeting up with some of the rest of your family. Am I guessing right that did your mom come down on this trip with you to the Mojave or were you with a different group on this occasion?
1: Uh, no, most of these times I was I with was them. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, and I think, you know, such a, we should give some credit, right, to an awesome family that, supported you in this exciting interest that you had. So yeah. you took your trip down there um, and what was it like? How did you find these scorpions?
1: Uh, so actually I did the Carrizo trip first. That was in May of 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, I went there for a couple of days, sampled around the area and spent quite a while in the daytime just examining the habitat and finding different spots where I thought the scorpion might be and kind of planning out like, uh, mm-hmm some sort of idea of where i'm going to sample to try to cover as much of his distribution as possible um and then at night uh, harper and i went out with our uv flashlights and we sampled all the different zones uh of habitat ranging from the normal sort of like desert grass habitats uh quite a distance away from the lake uh and then progressively getting closer until we were right at the edge of the lake bed and doing that we found that Especially along the western side of the lake, the scorpions were only found uh, around 10 meters away from the edge of the lake bed at most. So it's
0: a very specific area that you were finding
1: them in. Yeah. And in the right area, they were pretty common. Uh, That night, I think we probably found like 40 or 50. Um, And off those, we collected about 25.
0: And uh, so, um, again, I, just to build this story a little bit, so the the first observation you saw on iNaturalist that kind of made you go, oh, I think that's a new species, was in the Mojave Desert. But then there was another one that came up soon afterwards, which is this one, which is at the Carrizo Plains, correct?
1: Uh, yeah. Well, the one in the Mojave was posted a really long time ago, but we realized it was something new when we revisited it uh, somewhat more recently.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the Carrizo Plain one, though, Basically, as soon as it was posted, we were like, yeah, this is something new. Um,
0: and again, it's posted by somebody who probably doesn't recognize that what they've just posted is a new species, right?
1: Yeah, but we did uh, we did talk to them a little bit about that uh, later on.
0: Yeah, that must have been exciting for you and for them to be able to share that um, information. Yes. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that I find super exciting about scorpions and particularly about sharing them with different groups that come out here um, for visits, is the fact that when you use a black light, they um, have this amazing kind of purple glow that shows up. Does that help you? I'm imagining when you're going out at night and you're trying to collect, do these scorpions also, um, um, you see them glowing in the black light?
1: Yeah, actually it would be nearly impossible to find them if they didn't have that feature. Almost every single scorpion species that I found in the wild, I found through the use of a UV light. A couple of them in temperate environments, uh like uh all the coastal areas of California can be flipped undercover. But most of our interesting species are in the desert and they need to be blacklighted.
0: Interesting. And they're coming out at night as well, is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So both of these sites sound as you, you describe them as kind of sounding like they were quite inhospitable, not somewhere you would think of um, as being great um, habitat. Uh, can you tell me a bit more? You said it was, it's very alkali. Tell me a bit more about what these systems have.
3: Yeah,
1: so basically these are dry lake beds in endorheic uh, basins, which are areas where water can flow in, but can't flow out. Uh, so in desert areas, what ends up happening is that a lot of runoff of clay and uh, salts end up collecting at the bottom of these basins, making basically a dry salt lake. And the soil around them is very rich in clay, and it's very salty, and it's very alkaline. And it's really almost completely in, unsuitable for the vast, vast majority of plant species. The plant community is a very simplified species, normally consisting of like a, a couple of main in, uh, different types. In the Curso Plain, for example, it was really only one species, the island Bush, Alan Occidentalis and in Cohen Lake it was mostly two species, Um, it was the same ida and bush and another one suede and negra and uh, well compared to the areas outside of the rye lake beds that would contain dozens or hundreds of plant species.
0: So what are these, I mean scorpions are, uh, they they are predators right, what are they eating there, what are they finding that is good food for them?
1: Um, So this has not really been studied in very much detail Uh, In our own observations, we recorded predation uh, of these scorpions on small animals like beetles uh, and also uh, on other scorpions. But I I would guess that the scorpions are not in this environment for some specific food source because the environment itself is so thin. Uh, Most of the food is probably just flying in from the desert. They're eating probably small insects like moths and things that fly in. I think they're in this environment because it makes it easier for them to survive the desert conditions because there's a little bit of excess moisture and the clay soil makes it easier to burrow. Oh,
0: I see. Which is why you were saying when you saw that there were any scorpions in this area, so it's not as if you have a huge community of different scorpions in that area generally. It's really not an easy place to live.
1: Yeah. So with Periorecton and Soda, that's the only scorpion that lives in that site. Uh, with Baruocnus conclusus, the one at Cohen Lake in the Mojave, there's a couple of other species, but they're not very common in this alkaline region.
0: So, so you've found your your real uh, specimens, you've got enough together, and so I'm guessing at this point, Preparit. I mean, I, I I'm asking because I would have no idea how to go about this whole process. Who was giving you guidance as to how to move forward with actually getting this declared as a new species?
1: So we'd worked with uh, Dr. Lauren Esposto before. Uh, Actually, we'd worked with her on some other scorpions that we found that we thought were new species um, and done a little bit of work on them. So we had a basic idea of what sort of steps needed to be fulfilled. Um, The the other species are something that have ballooned into a much larger project that hopefully will be published at some point, but is looking like it's actually going to be really, really confusing and complicated.
0: So these ones, in comparison,
1: were somewhat simple, right? Yeah. So actually, the specific reason we picked these ones uh, instead of many other species that we had found and been working on is because these ones seemed super simple. Like mm-hmm. they lived in one locality. They had a like restricted distribution. They were all super distinct. There was nothing weird going on. Mm-hmm. So we decided to do these ones first as a relatively easy first description for us to uh, for us to tackle.
0: Great. But even this, even an easy first description, I mean, already to me, I'm thinking this sounds like a lot of work um, and a lot of knowledge that you had to bring to even understanding and recognizing that observation to begin with. You've got your specimens now. So what do you do with them? How do you go about kind of making the case for why this is different?
1: So first. With all the specimens, I started with photographing them all on a white background. So I would go and position each scorpion in as close to the same position as possible, and take photos. And then after that, I would pick. Uh, I picked a type series for each species. So I picked four adult males and four adult females for Bariorchnes soda, and I picked five adult males and two adult females for Bariorchnes conclusus as our type series, which is the set of individuals that defines the species and can be used by future scientists for study. Um, Then uh, I would examine all of those individuals under a microscope and uh, detail all of the different features on them, uh, whether it be the position of different hairs or the positions of different bumps or the shape and size and structure of all of the different pieces. Mm -hmm. And then I would also use calipers to measure uh, about like 30 to 40 different measurements on each of these scorpions uh, to categorize different aspects of their shape. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I would present all of that data and then collect similar data for similar species uh, and use that to compare, to uh, prove that these are distinct. How uh,
0: could you, how, did you have to go into museums or anything to access the information about similar species?
1: Um, so most of the similar species we had collected here and there while uh, doing our work in other areas. Luckily, these species were super distinct, so there wasn't really much confusion about their identity. But for a lot of the species I'm working on right now, um, they're living in areas where there's much m- more scorpion diversity and gets a little more confusing, so I'm accessing a lot of museum specimens for comparison.
0: So once you've got all of that data, oh, and I, I want to also give credit because I know that you worked alongside um, Harper Forbes on this. Was, was he helping you as you were getting this data together?
1: Yeah, he also did a lot of the data collection with me. Uh, he especially did uh, all of the measurements of individuals for this paper. Um, and then he also worked on uh, some of the analysis of uh, the structure of the clause, like the illustrations you'll see in the picture were all done by him.
0: Oh, gosh. Oh, how wonderful to know. have somebody who's skilled in doing the illustrations as well. That's great. Um, so you've got your point, you've got your data together. Um, your next step is publishing a paper. Is that, is that correct? Or what? what do you do when you've got everything together? You've got your whole package of all the information required.
1: Yeah so we we arrange everything into a nice manuscript um writing it takes a bit of time actually making all the figures nice and uh, presentable probably takes longer and then after that we submit it to a journal uh we decided to submit it to ZooKeys, which is nice because it's open access so anyone can read the paper um and then it goes in the peer review uh we got results back after a couple months, and they had a couple of revisions they wanted us to make. They wanted us to include uh, some details on a few features that we did hadn't included too many details on, mm-hmm. and they wanted a few more diagnostics between a couple of the species, um, because they thought that we hadn't provided enough. And then um, after that, uh, we sent it back, and then it was accepted for publication, uh, and it was published soon after. So took about a month from when we submitted a revision. Sorry, a year. From when he submitted it originally to when it was finally published, and then probably a similar amount of time for that uh, mm-hmm. to actually do the writing. So, started around May of twenty twenty one and August of twenty twenty two. It was so.
0: And from the first time you made the observation, how long back before the publication of the paper was that? Yes. Yeah, so the the first
1: observation was May of twenty twenty one. Uh, and then we submitted the paper in like I think Oct- September October of 2022, mm-hmm. and then including revisions and everything, it took until August of 2020. Sorry, August of 2022. Yeah, to yeah. get that published. Yeah. I think I messed up the dates here. Well, let me see. Yeah, that no,
0: that's fine. I I understood. So yes, you, you submitted it in September 2021, and then in yeah. like, August 2022, you you had that. Um, yeah, and so you 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 speak about this very calmly, Prakrit, as if this is something. That all, because I'm thinking that at this point in time, you were maybe still in high school. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, so you speak about this as if this is something that most high schoolers are doing, and it most most definitely is not. <laughs> I Did you feel a great sense of achievement um, and have a huge party when you found out that you had had that, that submission was successful?
1: Um, I was quite excited about it. I'd been waiting for that submission to finally be published for, for quite a while. Um, so, yeah, it, it was pretty exciting.
0: What were your teachers saying?
1: Um, well, by the time it was finally published, my I was out of high school, but I'd spoken to a few of my teachers about that. Uh, for instance, my research, te- research class teacher, and he was also very supportive throughout the whole process. He helped me with uh, some of my writing and took a look at some of the stuff I was publishing.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's absolutely fantastic. Um, and I, I just can't say enough wonderful things about um, how much we appreciate the work and the time you put in. Um, and I, I think that, you know, that really wants to bring me to this question I have. I think sometimes we can underestimate the value of describing a new species. Of Because it isn't just for fun. It isn't just because it feels awesome to have done that and gone through that process. You have now identified these two new species that live in these very specific habitats. And it sounded like the one in um, Carrizo Plains particularly. Could you you maybe describe to me what were the difference of the habitats and and the future for these two different scorpion species?
1: Uh, Yeah, so both of the habitats were pretty similar. They're right at the edge of a dry lake bed in an alkali sink environment. Uh, the one in the Carrizo Plain on the western edge of its distribution has the really, really thin range band. But on the eastern edge, there's uh, quite a bit more suitable alkali sink habitat. So it occupies a larger area in that in that uh, place. The one in Cohen Lake in the Mojave is the one with the really tiny habitat. So it's only about two kilometers long and maybe around 100 meters wide. Mm-hmm. So that's extremely tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, yeah, so both of these species seem to be living there, uh, we think, because of the increased moisture and uh, the increased ease of burrowing in these areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and them being found in these areas sort of indicates uh, kind of a specialness about this habitat. And it indicates that there might be many more endemics that are found in this area that might be more difficult to detect than scorpions because they don't glow under a black light or they m- might be much smaller.
0: Interesting. In fact, I guess scorpions in some way are a signal that this is a um, an area where you may find other endemic species, as you say, because they are in some ways easy to find because of that wonderful glowing under the black light. But um, it's it's a it's a signal to us that this is an area that's worth considering more deeply for different species as well. There may be more endemism. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, as difficult as scorpions sometimes are to find, they're much, much easier than trying to sample for a lot of other species that might never come to the surface or might be really, really small or might have very sporadic activity patterns. Uh, so scorpions really are a good indicator of habitat uniqueness in a lot of desert environments.
0: Interesting. And so these two different sites, am I right in thinking one of them is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is it a state park or a?
1: Uh, it's, Managed as uh, a national monument by the Bureau of Land Management. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, So it's fairly fairly well protected, correct?
1: um, Yeah, basically. I mean, it doesn't have the same sort of designations that National Park Service National Monuments have, but um, you can't build anything there. So it's basically protected from the main threat. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: But the other site, not quite the same, right? (laughs) No,
1: the other site is just... Like random government owned property that uh, might get loaned out to somebody for any sort of development project.
0: And if that were the case, it's possible that that species could be lost.
1: Yeah. Uh, if anything is built on top of its range, it's quite likely that the species will disappear.
0: Does your identification make a difference to what is possible there? Like, is it now recognized that this is a rare site and um, and there should not be uh, a development there or does it not really make any difference?
1: Uh, so we've been working with the IUCN to get this thing listed as a threatened species and with that hopefully uh, that'll be enough to protect uh, that area from development however we also want to work with the Bureau of Land Management to make just a very small little protected area right at that one site uh, just so that uh, just to make extra sure that nobody can build anything on top of it.
0: So it's it's really amazing, record, to hear not just the process you went through to identify them, but to see in the real world the benefit to having made that identification and the change that might make in policy and legislation. Um, and how incredible that you are following that through all the way through, so you are considering that as well. Is that something that you feel, I don't know, is it something that inspires you as well to actually um, add this information so that those decisions can be made with more knowledge? The time is 7.30 and you are listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX. We are in conversation with Prakrit Jain about his discovery of two new scorpion species in California and the value of this research to conservation efforts in our area.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important to take into account many more species for conservation decisions because most of the conservation decisions are basically made on a couple of groups. You know, people are are big into conservation of birds and mammals and reptiles and amphibians get a bit of attention. Things like butterflies get attention and bees, but nobody really thinks about arachnids in the whole of the US there's like a couple of arachnids with any level of protection and those are all found in like deep cave aquifers. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. There's no scorpions anywhere in the US that have any sort of protection even though many of them probably deserve it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's good that more and more species start getting looked at because a lot of these species might reveal something about their environments that's really special and worth protecting. I mean Importantly, protecting a species like Pariocnus conclusus isn't really about the scorpion. It's about everything that lives in that environment that would be destroyed if some development was made in that area. And since we know that environment is really special, it's special enough that over hundreds of thousands or billions of years, it's led to the formation of this distinct species. We know that it probably has led to the formation of other distinct species or at least a very distinct ecological community that deserves to be protected.
0: Mm-hmm. Gosh, Prakrit, I could not have put that any better myself. You are a wonderful communicator of science alongside being somebody who's clearly passionate about the research to um, What you. a joy to see you entering this scientific community um, and, and bring all that you bring to it. Um, I guess I also would just like to delve into that a tiny bit more to recognize that it isn't just um, development that is a, is a potential um, risk but we also uh, are seeing a changing climate yeah. how how are scorpions are uh, set to deal with uh, adapting what what changes may we see as climate changes in California?
1: So on the whole, most scorpions uh, should be relatively fine um, in California with changing climates. Uh, it's not likely to be great for any of them, but most of them live in environments that can tolerate a little bit of, of fluctuation. But these alkalizing scorpions, I think, are very, very vulnerable to climate change because they live in such a thin band between it being too wet in the lake and too dry in the desert. Of like there's just perfect condition where they can live that might be only tens of meters wide. Um, and as climate change, uh, change ends up warming the desert and in many areas also drying it out or reducing the rainfall patterns to times of year where uh, the water is not as evenly distributed. Um, we, I think, are likely to see a contraction in alkali sink environments. If you look at historical patterns of uh, these alkali sink areas uh, based on like fossil data and geology data, uh, you can find that uh, it the size of these alkali sink environments correlates very closely with uh, climate and rainfall patterns. So as the climate gets hotter and drier, the alkali sink environments shrink and that leads to species extinctions or range contractions. And um, right now we're already on a downslope. So the last glacial maximum in the Pleistocene was a time when these alkali sink species likely had a very large range um, and uh, likely lived in possibly many neighboring lake beds. And then, as glaciers receded and conditions became warmer and drier, uh, we think that many of these species might have become relictualized around alkali sink environments and with some other species in other areas that we're working on, we can see some evidence of this where uh, species are living in areas that are now disconnected but likely were connected uh some thousand years ago when uh the moisture levels were higher uh so What we find uh, when we look at this trend is that as the climate continues to dry, these habitats might contract completely to the point where there is no more suitable habitat for these scorpions or for any of the other many, many species that live in alkaline sinks. And that includes things like some species of tiger beetles. uh, It includes some species of toads, includes some species of pupfish. Many species are uh, very dependent on these small wetland environments in the desert. In fact, one example is Ash Meadows in Nevada which is considered to have the highest endemism of any site in the United States. Um, And it is an alkali sink wetland environment that's found in one area of Nevada, which actually is home to an undescribed species of alkalizing scorpion.
0: So, Prakrit, I hear that you are definitely going to be uh, documenting other new scorpion species you are still at the very beginning of your scientific career and you've already come so far. Um, What do you hope to do into the future? Or is that a question that is is still unknown at this point? (laughs)
1: Um, Well, I don't know uh, if I want to be working on um, these specific groups of scorpions forever or branching out to other things. Right now, I'm really enjoying working on scorpions, but there's a lot of really interesting groups that I would be very happy to work in. But I know that I want to be working in ecology and conservation and evolutionary biology. Uh, those I find to be the most interesting fields.
0: I remember one of the visits that you came here, you found more reptiles than I have been able to find <laughs> for the entire time I've been living here. And you managed to find them in just one evening. Um, so do, do you still have a, a, a an enjoyment of looking at um, other reptiles too?
1: Yeah, reptiles are, are something that are a lot of fun for me to find, even though... I'm not as interested in studying them specifically as I am scorpions.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Yeah, going out for for a day of looking for snakes is is still one of my favorite activities.
0: It's fun. It's kind of nice to hear you talk about something which is like, and this is what I do for fun. Um, (laughs) Sounds like all of it's kind of fun for you, but um, maybe some species hit the fun more and the other species that are really um, leading you further into into these discoveries. Well, Prakrit, I am just thrilled to talk with you today. Um, I'm amazed by what you're doing. And um, I think it gives us a huge amount. I hate to be one of these people who sort of says, oh, well, you know, we've got the planet into such a disaster. Well, that we hand it over to uh, the youth and they will figure it out. That's not the way we need to think, obviously. But I do think there is something to be said for recognising the huge uh, knowledge and um, difference that you are making in this area and it gives me some hope for the future um, and I'll keep doing what I can do as well <laughs> as an educator but um, I appreciate all that you're all your efforts at this stage and I hope we get to see you back up at Hopland at some point um, I we don't have the desert conditions that I think you've been enjoying researching but um, it would be fun to have you up here again
1: yeah, I, I really enjoy the the northern coast ranges and hopefully I'll get a chance to visit Hopland sometime this spring.
0: I'll send you some invitations at times that we'd love to have you out here. Thank you so much for joining me, Prakrit, and um, thank you for joining the Ecology Hour.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, thank you so much to Prakrit for his inspiration. It's just such a joy to hear him talk about his um interest in scorpions and where that's taken him and I'm so excited to see where it might take him from this point onwards. Now we're going to shift over to consider the damage that has been done by the heavy snowfall on our woodlands with Dr. Mike Jones and Kyle Farmer from University of California Cooperative Extension kyle and mike took a hike with me here at the hopland research and extension center just the other day to assess some of the damage that had been done to the trees on site many of the trees have fallen on the site here and i was really interested in looking at each of those individual cases and understanding what led to them falling or losing limbs during the heavy snowfall I think it's also worth noting that since we are outdoors, you may hear some other sounds in the background, including that of Roo, Dr. Mike Jones's wonderful new dog. So apologies that Roo joins in the conversation at times. You're also going to hear the the sound of chainsaws that are working to um, move some of that downed um, wood, which has come down after the storm. And of course, the sound of sheep, which is always in the background here at the Hopland Research and Extension Center. So I started by visiting with Mike and Kyle and taking a look at one of the first trees that we came across on our hike. Both of you I think of as absolute experts on all things to do with trees and land. And so when the snow fell heavy here on Thursday night last week, just a week ago, um, and I woke up on the Friday morning to what felt like some kind of white apocalypse where trees were just down all over the place over the roads. All I could hear was the sound of limbs snapping under the weight of the snow. Um and we stopped so we're taking a little tour around the Hopland Research and Extension Center now to just see what we can learn from what we have seen. What's come down? Why did it come down? What's going to happen now? What's the future for these trees? And Kyle has immediately stopped us in one spot. Kyle, can you describe to us what you're seeing and why you think this might be a good thing?
3: (laughs) Oh, you know, I think the first place to start with disturbance ecology is to kind of free ourselves of that constraint of good and bad.
0: So can you explain to me, when you say disturbance ecology, what do you mean?
3: Let's let's bring that over to the actual PhD disturbance (laughs) ecologist.
2: I I mean... Yeah, so disturbances are either biotic or abiotic events that cause an impact to the forest. It's any natural resource, really. Even humans, we have disturbances, right? Insects disease are an issue in both humans and plants. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we think about disturbance ecology and disturbance regimes, what we're really talking about are... Significant events that impact the forest in whatever capacity that means. It means tree mortality, whether it's a snow event where it causes damage or maybe it's a fire or an asteroid, which is one of my favorite examples of a, of a disturbance event. Um, We've
0: had fire and snow here. I'm worried so about asteroids, yeah, <laughs> asteroids are next. Yeah,
2: asteroids are next. But so it's basically any kind of event that changes. Really, if you think about the forest is growing and it's moving through time, in a, some kind of state, not a steady state, but in some kind of system where it's moving forward, a disturbance is, is a disruption in that process. And as Kyle suggested, that's not good or bad; it just changes things and either sets it on a new trajectory or, um, you know, has some kind of I- ecological impact that will either benefit or or, or um, have a short-term significant impact. But through time, the system can usually recover.
0: Excellent. Okay. And just to explain to listeners, we also have the delightful Rue with us, who is a four-month-old mix. Yep dog, yeah, and he's gorgeous, and I suspect he may have some things to say as we discuss disturbance ecology today.
3: He's, yeah, He's also on his own sort of trajectory, he and is. depending on <laughs> yeah. how Mike treats him, he might create a disturbance And he was my disturbance! Events.
2: Yeah, he was my disturbance! I just got him like a month a ago, welcome a disturbance. significant disturbance. Yeah.
3: And in some cases, dogs, right, are sort of intentional disturbance events we create for our lives, right?
0: Ru, if you wish to join the Ecology Hour today, you're welcome. Oh, he
3: he so will. in this case, is, we were walking by, and we immediately started noticing the sort of abundance of small shade tolerant plants that may be sort of really benefiting from the amount of light that's gonna start coming into the to the forest floor once this, uh, you know, snow weight sort of glaze event happened and caused all this branch breakage. Um, you're because now I- creating forest openings and gaps where mm-hmm. shade tolerant plants that have been, you know, kind of sitting in the background, biding their time. Um, certain plants, you know, might've even sprouted and yet were too Uh, shade intolerant and so they're long gone and now all we have left are the shade tolerant plants and they're kind of this is what they've been waiting for
1: Mm
0: -hmm. so i'm seeing some bay and some toyon down here um and that that that's the strategy that works for them right this is like they're keeping an eye they've been shade tolerant they've got canopy over from a big oak above them and now there's a break in that canopy because some of the limbs fell after the heavy snow that we had
3: and it's all the sequence and the size of the plant at the time of the disturbance event. So the, the snow event that we had in January two years ago, um, kind of semi, you know, 15, 20-year-old bays were really heavily impacted in the understory. In that particular event up near Willits, from what I observed getting away from the road and, and hiking in a bit, is a lot of the overstory trees were actually fine. Mm -hmm. mean they might have broken some branches but they were surviving Mm -hmm. and the understory bays were at a point in their life where they were starting to get too rigid to be able to handle the snow event and they were actually incredibly impacted Mm -hmm. by it they're also re-sprouters so similar to fire you know even when they're broken off they might be able to give it another go Mm -hmm. without having to restart a root system so they're going to be they're they're very they're going to be very opportunistic in a lot of these different disturbances
0: so that brings us nicely we're going to keep walking for a little bit now but i think what we're going to be looking for is um who who took the worst of the i don't know i'm um, now you've told me about disturbance ecology i'm careful to not say the worst of anything right it's just something that happened but i do think there's a difference in what how much this affected different species different yeah. tree species so let's certain talk disturbance
3: about events you know a stand replacing really you know heavy duty wildfire is going to be more homogenous in its impact. It might, you know, kill or at least top kill everything out there. Um, In that case, you know, it's going to be those plants that have adapted to be able to allow for their seeds to survive that are going to benefit and be able to make a move at that point. Um, But to me, what I find most interesting in disturbance ecology and especially in our ability to manage disturbance to some degree, such as with prescribed fire, is can you create events and can you plan for events that actually have different impact on different species and can you use disturbance to actually manage for certain objectives Mm. that you're trying to achieve so this would be an example where a lot of these shade tolerant um, understory plants Mm. had there been a more you know expected what the oak trees what all these trees have been expecting which would be more of a low severity high frequency (laughs) fire return interval these might not even be here in the first place Mm -hmm. right interesting and so now you have more fuel on the ground in the, in the form of the, of the dead branches. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now that fire is going to be a different yeah. event than it would have been without this snowfall event. So they're all interacting yes. over space and time.
0: I definitely want to talk more about that too. So I'm going to take a pause now and we'll keep walking for a while. Go ahead, Mike. What Tell me, what, what are we looking at right now, first of all, for our listeners?
2: So we're at a, another tree that, this, this tree came down completely. and In fact, it was two trees. It's, it looked like It was two stems, right? Sharing the same kind of root, um, the root zone. And then two completely separate, large stems, probably almost two two feet in diameter almost, if if maybe, maybe a little under. But um, they were sharing the same space. And so they were growing into each other. It was a weak, it was a seam in the stems. And what you can see is the weight of the snow on the branches, on the tree itself, was enough to kind of push them apart. And they both failed completely. Mm at the base and um I, this is another so there's kind of some patterns that are coming obvious this isn't obviously a really good example of when you have seams that are weakened at the at the roots right they're they're more likely to fail especially if they're already super saturated and wet and then we have the roots current kind of uprooting and coming out of the soil too because on top of the tree the wood itself being saturated and heavy the soil is super saturated from all the rain we've had. And mm-hmm. so you've had these multiple points of failure in which the architecture may have been fine in the top of the tree, but at the at the foundation, it was weakened because of the way it gro- grown. Uh-huh. And this was probably an example of a tree that burned in a fire because it's a multi-stem tree, right? Uh-huh. So it re-sprouted at some point. Mm-hmm. So there's an, there's another case for, you know, uh, the, the kind of way our species have evolved is that multi-stem <laughs> species probably aren't very adapted to to deal with things like snow and heavy heavy kind yeah. of uh, events that would have created extra weight on the canopy.
0: So one thing you would just and we can walk so that Rue gets oh. a little bit of walking in while we're doing this. Um, one thing you were just explaining was also how different tree species, like how that would affect them, just thinking logically how snow would fall on a conifer yeah. versus What we're seeing a lot of down here is uh, live oaks that came down. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about what the difference is there?
2: Yeah, there's some really important life history traits that that trees exhibit based on their kind of the disturbance regimes or the anticipated disturbances in which they would be exposed to. So if you're from a place where you get lots of snow, lots of heavy, wet snow, then you're probably going to have trees that a lot of them are deciduous because that leaf canopy is a lot of surface area that captures that snow and adds a lot of weight to the architecture of the tree. Mm Um, it, and then you also have other things like more flexible branches that kind of can kind of collapse under the weight, but then as the snow, they spring back it's, you see that with a lot of conifers and they see a lot of, uh, other hardwoods that have the architecture of their branches in a way that, um, either prevents the buildup of snow or is that has that ability to rebound. And so our species don't really think about a valley oak. It has a really cool, crazy architecture, of that corkscrew. It's not very conducive to having a lot of additional weight on top, right? They mm-hmm. kind of really extend themselves and have unusual forms that when you get something like a heavy snow, wet snow that sits on it, it just doesn't have the, the strength to resist that. And so mm-hmm. that's really, you know, kind of an example of our species not being super adapted to a regular snow event. Certainly mm-hmm. they would have happened, right? This is not kind of a fluke They've, we've had snows in the past that have done this. Um, but it's something not not like a regular disturbance that you would expect somewhere else where where there was snow.
0: So when I woke that morning and I heard all these branches cracking and saw all the trees that come down I guess there was a little part of me that wondered if this was a good and cleansing thing and again I'm using the same language I always want to say is it good or is it bad yeah but um you know it's it's taking down branches which were unhealthy. Is there any element we can look on this and see that there might be, is there value? <laughs> <laughs> well, one, one
3: thing I think is interesting is just to look around at where we are right now. So I wanted to walk over to this younger live oak that we have here because it's interesting. It's a much younger tree and yet it's already exhibiting the same kind of multi-stem with some pretty severe bark inclusion right now, right? So obviously So just explain this tree, that again would you, okay, so we have inclusion? Two we have two stems that grew up right next to each other and they they're actually touching each other all the way down until maybe a foot off the ground. So this is another example of a tree that due to some disturbance event, perhaps some sort of herbivory or perhaps a fire, something early in its life it began developing this architecture that Mike was describing of that much mm-hmm. older tree. Mm-hmm. And so this tree was small enough that it wasn't impacted in that event mm-hmm. because the, the simple mechanical advantage of its branches mm-hmm. was insufficient to really tear it apart. Mm-hmm. But you could really imagine this tree, maybe in a hundred years, Being in that having a similar fate.
0: Ah, Interesting. Gosh, it really makes you look at every single individual tree and its structure in a deeper way. Yeah.
3: Especially places like this, you know, we're along a road, so yeah. that, that in itself was a kind of disturbance event that opened up light availability to all of these plants. Mm -hmm. And because of that, when you drive along a road, you'll notice that many of the plants are seeking light in that created opening. Mm -hmm. Just the same way that they have evolved to take advantage of perhaps a neighboring tree falling, they're taking advantage of that road creation and sending more branches and more leaves over towards the road where there's available light. And that also creates in these places like this that have been modified in order to provide for these houses and corrals and everything else that we've built, we have probably as well as doing that have accentuated that open grown architecture of mm-hmm. all of these trees, mm-hmm. which is why it's always interesting when we see one of these kind of seemingly anomalous events to get a little bit deeper in the woods mm-hmm. and see how much of it's being influenced by the road itself.
0: Ah, interesting. Compounded right.
3: on top of that, on the drive in, these road cuts have altered the hydrology Right? So you have these trees that are road adjacent, and this 80-year-old road cut has, has been altering the environment for that tree mm-hmm. for 80 years, which is nothing in the lifetime of some of these trees. Yeah. So it's it's the logical mm-hmm.
0: kind because, of... Yeah, what we notice often after an event like this is what we see from the road, and exactly. the fact that the road is blocked because a tree fell on it. Uh-huh. So it's gonna be interesting. We'll do take a walk now and we'll get a little bit deeper in, and hopefully we'll get to see a bit more of what's going on in the interior a little bit more there.
3: Okay. Yeah
0: okay so we've moved location a little bit now we're actually in uh part of the hopland research and extension center but it's actually my back garden where a valley oak lost a um a large limb and definitely scared us that night (laughs) in the process and took out one of my chickens as well but apart from that that's not what we're talking about in the ecology hour mike kyle when you look at this this is a big old tree i don't know have you got a sense of how the diameter of this or how old you think this could be
2: Well, you can't really age it, right? Valley Oak, it's hard to age trees based on their size and Valley Oak go pretty fast. They can put on an inch a year of growth. So it's hard to predict, but it's at least four or five feet in diameter. So it's a big tree. It also has lots of evidence of previous significant failures of large canopy branches. So honestly that the big, I think multiple branches came out of this tree is not entirely surprising. what is surprising is that given how much existing damage there was, that there wasn't more heart rot established in these branches that helped to the failure. Mm-hmm. The branches actually came down, the wood's in really good shape. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's, with all of these failures, it's not just the snow itself with every any single tree on the landscape, right? It's not just the snow. There's a series of disturbance events that kind of happened in a perfect sequence to lead to this. And mm-hmm. what I suspect, maybe based on what we're seeing, is... Old tree, really funky architecture, um, really ex- tall branches. These branches look like they're pretty exposed at the top. So we have the snow sitting on there, adding to the weight. Maybe the tree, the way the wood broke and splintered suggests that it was probably relatively dry, which is surprising given that we're, you know, I don't know how much rain you've had up here, but, but at least 35, yeah, yeah, 40 yeah, inches, no, right?
0: A, a decent amount for this for this year compared to other years, for yeah. certainly recent years. And that brings me to a question. I've, I've had this conversation with a lot of people this week about why we're seeing so much impact from this storm and a lot of people have said well it's a it's a compounding of recurrent years of drought so these trees are weakened to start with and then you have this heavy heavy snow load is there truth in that
2: i ask both of you <laughs> I I, okay i'm, I'm not going to answer that directly because it's 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 complicated right there is i think a lot of us have heard of that summer oak branch drop or sudden oak branch drop which is where a limb will fail unexpectedly in the middle of the summer we don't actually understand the mechanism behind that there's some theories based on what's happening maybe the tree is stressed it's releasing a stress hormone called ethylene which is alcohol the ethylene causes cell ap- apoptosis or cell, mort- cell mortality which causes weakening at that point of stress and so you have these failures So it's entirely possible there's some existing stress from the drought but i'm not gonna i can't i I wouldn't be comfortable nor will i really agree with it that the drought stress Mm -hmm. is affecting the architecture or the wood integrity enough that it would cause this failure in this event what's happening is these trees just their architecture is not um set up to deal with things like heavy wet snow Mm -hmm. and and um A lot of the trees, you see branch breaking, I think it's because they're exposed and they have large surface area for collecting snow, so it's just kind of a weight and physics event. Um, A lot of the big branches we saw broken have heart rot, so they're already structurally weakened, and so the weight just kind of pushes them past that limit. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the trees that we've been seeing, in particular areas that have been hit really hard, it's the whole tree uprooted. Mm -hmm. And so it's not that the wood itself Mm -hmm. in the tree, the above-ground biomass, was damaged. Mm -hmm. It's that we have drought stress, so the roots are kind of already losing biomass because they're kind of dying back a little bit then we have wet interspersed with that that in- introduces root rot diseases like oak root rot and other kinds of pathogens that will further damage and weaken the root structure then we have saturated soils after tons of rains after not many rains for a long time maybe you have rodent burrowing under your tree and they're creating pockets and there's water saturation or loosened the soil and then you add all this weight onto a leaning branch and now the whole tree just goes whoop and it tips over.
0: So what I, um, you know, I'm oft, often trying to simplify things that I know are very complicated. Yeah. But one of the things that I know I've been hearing is a projection of what to expect with um, climate um, change in the future in Mendocino and the North Coast of California is um, that our uh, our rains will come in huge, significant storms rather than spread across a longer period in lighter ones, and that seems to set up just the scenario that you've described that's going to make it really hard for these, for these trees.
2: Yeah. I, if that is the trajectory of things, yeah, it's going to create issues. Now, I think we also, Kyle mentioned this earlier too, we're also in this kind of urban space and also a a factor that's playing here is edge effect, as Mm -hmm. Kyle was mentioning about trees being open grown on road, road cuts and stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's another factor where we've altered the hydrological cycles we've had road cuts where trees and then sprouted in really loose soils that kind of erode and slip inside and under normal rain events but when you have a super saturating event like an atmospheric river mm-hmm. and then you add snow on that it's just too much so mm-hmm. it's not as e- easy to say that i mean certainly all this plays in the factor but it's not easy enough to say like climate change means that trees are going to yeah. fail all over the place it, yeah. this may be a trend that we're seeing because we're in these spaces And I've certainly have seen it out on the landscape, but not to the level at all that we're seeing it within the areas along roads Mm -hmm. and in urban spaces.
3: Yeah, valley oaks are a unique species because it's hard to find them outside of highly impacted areas. Mm -hmm. You know, they are, they are, they like to live where we like to live and they like to live like where we like to do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So it's, you don't find a lot of examples of sort of um, valley oaks that aren't on decline. Mm You know, this this, for this tree, this was just the first in a series of events that it's now experiencing, right? It now has these large, really high surface area wounds. Mm -hmm. Um, And as Mike was just, we were just over here looking at a previous wound that this tree experienced. We don't know what happened over here. Mm -hmm. It kind of looks like maybe there was some sort of failure followed perhaps by a a pruning cut or something as Well, well. Or
2: maybe there was another snowstorm previously mm-hmm. this tree is old enough that it certainly has experienced multiple storm events That
0: I'm sorry to cut Kyle and Mike off a little in mid-flow this evening um, I am going to be sharing more of what they had to offer in our ecology hour next month um, when we'll continue to consider how this recent weather has affected our trees and our woodlands thank you so much for listening to the ecology hour this evening and I'll look forward to talking with you again next month Please remember that if you have any comments about the program, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit us at our Facebook page at the Hopland Research and Extension Center, or find us on Twitter and Instagram at HoplandREC. Rec. Or you could always send me an email, hbird, h-b-i-r-d, at u-c-a-n-r dot e-d-u. We'd love to hear from you and find out what you'd like to be hearing on the Ecology Hour into the future.
3: This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red Donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.